0: All I know is that when I was pastoring in Cleveland, I never got to preach after listening to her. So uh, thank you, Kim. That was great. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. We're going to hear again from Kim uh, after I get done speaking during our communion time. So uh, please, if you enjoyed that, you're going to enjoy a lot more of her uh, here soon. And so we're really blessed to have her with us today. I want to apologize in advance for something, and that's that, uh, you know, when I prepare my messages, sometimes, and I don't see this coming, they come out extremely lopsided. And you're saying, what do you mean? Well, I, uh, I, I do a study break, and in my study break, I, I come up with sermon outlines and message outlines, and I submit them to uh, the staff here, and, and we start to run with that. But I don't do my, my real exegesis or research for my messages until that week. It's just the time that I have, so I submitted my outline for today's sermon a while back, and then this week on Thursday I spent all day Thursday in the text that we're going to look at today, and then Friday started putting the message together. And I don't know, I don't know what a comparable would be to this, but all I know is that um, I got to the end of Friday, and I, I had just gotten done giving you guys point one. You see where I'm going with this? By the end of Friday, and I was about 35 minutes into a 35-minute message. And you got a choice at that point. I can either make it a two-parter, which we don't have time to do because we're a little bit of where the series is going and what's starting next with guest speakers and all that in July, or I can just say I'm going to make a three-point sermon, a one-point sermon, let the rest of you who have to fill in the blanks do so at the end. I'll give you a chance to do that so that you don't have anxiety for the rest of the day, and then just say this is what the Lord gave me and apologize up front for a relatively lopsided sermon that 's what you 're going to get today, but having said that i 'll tell you this i 'm really fired up about point one i, I, I am i 'm glad you found that funny dave I, I really am I, 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 just, I, I looked at point one and I thought this is great stuff it 's right from god 's word we 're going to stick close to the text, and I think you 're going to like it it 's going to be a unique perspective on joy, I promise you. So let's bow, let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, thank you that you do speak to us through your word. You don't always speak like we would think you would. Uh, Lord, for a pastor, me, I like to have a well-honed, three-point, really balanced sermon every Sunday. But God, sometimes you surprise me and lead me down a road in which you say, no, stay on, stay on this point. And I feel like you did that with me this week, God, and I'm thankful. So I pray, God, that as I share these thoughts with uh, these dear people um, that hopefully are absolutely consistent, right in line with your word, that, God, you might speak to our hearts, challenge us, uh, encourage us along in our walk with you. And, And as today's topic, Lord, in Philippians is, may we find joy, more joy than we even have now when it comes to our walk and our relationship with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So here's my opening question, and it's one that I hope some of you have thought of before, and that is, how do you help non-joyful people find joy? Have you ever thought about that? How do we help the non-joyful people in our lives find joy? Or, Or to use an old example, how do we help the Eeyores in our life become a little bit more like Tigger or Winnie the Pooh? My wife loves that analogy. She'll say to me on certain days, you're just like an Eeyore today. I wish you were a little bit more like Tigger. you have a little bit more bounce in your step. How do we help the chronically sad people in our lives have a bit more of hope and joy? And as you're thinking about this, let me be really clear about what I'm looking for here because I know how some of you think. I'm not talking about those who are sad and lack joy for a reason. In other words, maybe you've experienced a loss recently or are dealing with a consuming problem at work or a nasty marital breakdown issue that you didn't see coming. I mean, there's some good reasons that we are sad for a time in this life, and those those are some of the scenarios. And I'm not talking about this morning simply those who have a more subdued and melancholy temperament. We know that some people are just born a little bit more mellow and a little bit more sad, reflective in their lives. No, I'm not talking about those types of things. I'm simply talking about those around us, maybe even you, who have never experienced real and true joy in our lives, who have lived so long in the land of glum that you've never really visited the land of hope and contentment. How do we help those around us that we love find true joy in their lives? Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist, didn't think it could be done. In fact, he saw this as his only goal in working with his patients, and I quote, these are his own words, to transform hysterical misery into common unhappiness. That was Sigmund Freud's main goal with his patients. Can you imagine? To transform hysterical misery into common unhappiness. And by the way, that's the most happy picture I could find of this guy. I was searching all day yesterday. It's true, Rogers. I was putting the finishing touches on this message. I I thought I I couldn't find one of him smiling. And all I could think of is I'm glad I don't live back then. And I'm glad I didn't see him for my problems. Aren't you? Uh, And yet you and I live in a different day and age now. And I got to tell you, people today are much more positive about the prospects of finding sustained joy. They are. The most popular class right now at Harvard University is called Positive Psychology. Positive Psychology, it's a school of thought developed about a decade ago that focuses on mental wellness, not just mental illness. It focuses on how to find joy and happiness in life, not just trying to solve your problems in hopes that you might find joy. And as a result of this and other cultural movements, Psychology Today magazine cites that in 2008, there were just about 4,000 books published on happiness. Let that sink in a minute. 4,000 new books on happiness, this up from 50 books in the year 2000 on happiness. I mean, we've seen a happiness explosion in our country. As I've said before from this pulpit, our world is on a holy hunt for happiness, a journey to try to find joy. And yet, as we've also noted before, however, with all of this emphasis on trying to find joy and happiness, the signs are not very encouraging. So for instance, the same college that sees droves of students signing up for positive psychology, Harvard, also cites that a full 15% of its students are reported as being clinically depressed. Imagine that. That's like one in six, one in seven students. All of these them taking positive psychology are clinically depressed. And even more so with all of these books that we're publishing on happiness, there's now a backlash against all of these books as new books are coming out. And only in America could this happen that are pining the virtues of sadness. That's what's happening in our… give me a click here, guys. These are two of the latest books that have been out in the last few years. The first one is called The Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into a Depressive Disorder, which I probably wouldn't disagree with. And then Eric Wilson's book, and I love this title, Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy. Only in our country could you have a book that's entitled Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy. There's even a recent biography on Abraham Lincoln that argues that it was Lincoln's ongoing depression that actually enabled him to be the man that he was and that it was his sadness that created the wonderful leader in him. Simply note, folks, this is my only point, that our culture is all over the map when it comes to this thing called joy. Ping-ponging back and forth between a rather fruitless hunt for happiness, but then capitulating to the virtues of sadness. And so back to our original question, is it possible to find true joy? Is it at all realistic to think that we can help those around us turn the corner from chronic sadness to joyful contentment? And as some, if not many of you know, the Bible has an answer to this question, and it is a resounding yes. That's what the Bible says. I almost said that it's an unqualified yes, but it's not an unqualified yes. There are some qualifiers, as we're going to see today, but the Bible, if you've read it, does say that we can certainly find joy this side of heaven. So check this out. The book that we're studying this spring at our church, the New Testament book of Philippians, is only four chapters long. I tested it. You can read it in about 15 minutes. And yet in that 15 minutes, spanning four short chapters, you will confront the subject of joy and rejoicing no less than 16 times. 16 times in four chapters. I would call that a theme. Sixteen times it uses the word rejoice, joy, cheer, or some other variant. Sixteen times it talks about how you can find joy in a myriad of different life circumstances, including, by the way, suffering. And in not stopping with simply telling us that joy can be found, it even goes on, as the Bible so often does, to tell us how we can find joy. It gives us some direction on how you and I can find joy and contentment this side of heaven. And so I want to read about it this morning. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. We are going to park here this morning for the rest of our time together. And we're going to be reading from verses 17 to 30. Philippians 2, verses 17 to 30. And then I'm going to throw in a quick reading after that from chapter 3, verse 1, which is the very next verse. And then chapter 4, verse 4, just to do some, give some justice to the weight That this book puts on this theme of joy and how to find it so philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse 17 the apostle paul is the one writing and he says this he says even if i am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith i am glad and rejoice with you all likewise also you should be glad and rejoice with me here it is that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that i may be less and that i may be less anxious so receive him in the lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me finally my brothers rejoice in the lord to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you and then for chapter 4 verse 4 rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice so where and even how is true joy found three places that paul points to three places that many people today either miss or don't fully understand three places that as c.s lewis said can surprise us with joy if we will but let them And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to spend almost all of our time remaining today on this first one. But then next week, we're going to, as we turn the corner into a different theme, see more about these second two things as we go along in Philippians. So here is the first one. It's really my main point today. And that is, how or where is true joy found? In others who love us and minister to us. You don't hear this too often from the pulpit nowadays. We always hear that we find joy in our relationship with the Lord, which as we're going to see next week, is absolutely true. But one of the things I want to show you here today is that Paul the Apostle spends the absolute majority of his space in the latter half of Philippians 2 here writing about how joy can be found in others who love us and minister to us. And though some of you introverts and very self-sufficient people are tempted to think right now, well, isn't that awfully codependent, Jamie? You need to know that my goal this morning is to show you that this is not codependent, that I believe this is a God-given, biblically sound source of joy. So dial into this. One of the things that many Bible experts find kind of interesting, if not weird, about the latter half of Philippians 2 here is the amount of space that Paul gives to his discussion of two individuals that he is sending to the church in Philippi, Timothy and Epaphroditus. I mean, out of 14 verses that make up the latter half of this chapter, a full 12 of them, did you catch it, are all about describing the nature and personalities of these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what's even more interesting is that the obvious context of this discussion about these two men is joy. Paul begins in verses 17 to 18 by declaring his own gladness and rejoicing and then using the imperative commands the Philippians to likewise rejoice and be glad as if somehow we can make ourselves happy. But then he goes on to pull a fast one and goes into this lengthy discussion about the character traits and the personalities of Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom the Philippians knew already. And in the midst of this verbose discussion of these two men, he makes it very clear that their mere presence has the capacity to bring joy to their lives. He says in verse 28 that they will very likely rejoice at seeing these men again. And so he then tells them in verse 29 to receive them with all joy. And then he begins the very next chapter with another duplicate command, again in the imperative tense, to rejoice. So add all this up, folks. The bookends of this discussion about these two men coming to see the Philippians is this theme of joy, two duplicate commands to rejoice. And then even right in the middle of the discussion of these two men, he inserts joy and says they have the capacity to bring joy into your lives. And so, the question that any astute reader should be asking himself or herself at this point is this What is it about the coming of people like Timothy and Epaphroditus into our lives that can be so powerful in giving us joy, right? Or put more clearly, there's lots of people that come in and out of our lives, and yet most of them do not leave footprints of joy in our lives. Let's just be honest. So what is it about the coming of guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus into our lives that can bring joy, so much so that Paul the Apostle says it's going to happen? Let's first look at how Paul describes the likes of Timothy. And notice with me three things that he says about Timothy that might just give us some clues as to the kind of friend who can give you and me joy. He describes Timothy as one who has authentic concern spiritual focus, and then proven or tested character. Let me repeat that. Timothy had an authentic concern for the Philippians. He had a spiritual focus. We'll see what we mean by that in a minute. He focused them on Jesus Christ, and then also a proven or tested character that he brought into his relationship with them. And all this, Paul says, brings joy. Look again at verse 20 to 22 and you'll see what I mean. It says about Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So there it is, folks. Genuinely concerned, interests of Jesus Christ, proven worth. You should latch on to and love that phrase, Genuinely concerned. It simply refers to a person whose concern for you is real and authentic, not plastic or fake. It's a what you see is what you get kind of concern. They love you for you. They have a legitimate interest in you as you. That's what Paul is saying there. I did some research on that phrase this week, and it's a powerful phrase. It simply means it's an other-centered phrase in which a person is focusing on you, and they just happen to like what they see in you. They embrace you and accept you as you, and yet, as we're going to see in a minute, they don't want to leave you as you. They want to help you grow because they have such a genuine spiritual interest in you as an individual. That's what Timothy did for the Philippians. I I, I told you all before, I'm in a men's group of men that I meet with every Thursday morning, four other men, uh, two from this church, two not from this church. And and I'm telling you, I, I can remember the day, it was four different days, that I met each of these men and knew right then that I wanted to be in harness with them. And the reason is, is because out of all the people that I meet with, these four individuals just happen to take a genuine concern in me as an individual. Not from what they could get from me as a pastor, Uh, not what they could get from me as a a leader in the community, nothing like that. They just had a a genuine interest in me. By the end of my first discussion with these men, they knew my kids' names. They knew their ages. They knew where they were going to school. They knew what my wife did for a living. They knew a little bit about some of my dreams and hopes. And, And I ended my one or two hour breakfast or lunch with each of these men saying, I'd love to be in a small group with them. They have a genuine concern for me. In fact, I came home, and and it was all fired up and joyful. My wife said, why are you in such a good mood? That's kind of unusual for you. And I said, well, I I just met these men, and and, and they have a genuine concern for me. You get the picture. There's some people in our lives uh, that tend to have a genuine and authentic concern for you as you, and we find joy in being around them. And then notice that next phrase, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is simply Paul's way of noting that there are some people in the Philippians' lives who might show an interest in them, but it's not really a spiritual interest, the kind of interest that Jesus would have in and for them, but a self-serving interest, a what-I-can-get-from-you kind of interest. But his point is not Timothy. his genuine concern is backed up by having the same concerns that Jesus would have for them that he would know them and love them and follow them and that they might find their purpose in Jesus it's a spiritual concern Timothy was interested spiritually in these people as ones made in the image of God as redeemed in Jesus Christ and that kind of interest gave them joy and then on top of all of this Timothy is one who had proven worth proven worth this phrase simply pictures one who has been put to the test in life and has passed they've been examined and found to be faithful and consistent this is a person who can be trusted because he or she has been in the trenches with you and proven himself to be able to watch your back and protect your very soul And folks, I would simply submit to you this morning that these three building blocks, authentic concern, spiritual focus, and proven character found in any person that you let into your life will certainly be a joy giver to you because this is describing a godly person who loves you for you and yet have proven themselves over and over again in the trenches to not want to leave you there but also have a spiritual concern to help you be all that you can be in Christ. And i got to believe that many of you have friends like this. Or at the very least, if you've not let them in yet, have people like this knocking on the door of your life that if you would but take a risk, would be willing to love you for you and bring joy into your life. You see, people like this uh, do bring joy in our life. They infuse God-given hope and joy for one simple reason, and that is that they love us as our heart longs to be loved. And the reason that this works the way it does is because the greatest need of the human heart is to be loved for who we are, but then have people love us enough not to leave us there, but help us grow. And when you got someone knocking on the door of your life, like a Timothy was knocking on the door at the church in Philippi there, a person who has an authentic concern for you, loving you as you, but then also wants what God wants for you, a spiritual concern and focus, and then on top of this has proven himself or herself capable of being consistent in all of these things, I think we can all see this has got to bring us joy. Amen? I mean, that people like this in our lives has got to be a joy giver if anything ever would. These are joy-giving people. What Tim Kimmel calls pallbearer friends are being talked about here. They are the kind of people that are going to carry your casket someday, or maybe you just might carry theirs if if they go first. They're joy-givers in our lives, and their mere presence does nothing but infuse joy. Now, hang on to that, and notice with me, if all that were not enough, how Paul then goes on to describe a second individual, and then we're going to put all this together, a second individual that he's also sending to the Philippians, the type of whom is different, but can also bring joy, a different kind of friend with his own unique character and personality, Epaphroditus. And notice that Paul likewise describes Epaphroditus in three powerful ways. He describes him as someone who is a fellow worker and soldier, a trustworthy messenger, even as we'll see from God, and one who is willing to give his life for you. And Paul adds all this up and says, he can give you joy. So look at verses 25 and 30, and you'll see what I mean. It says, Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and then verse 30, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Very interesting phraseology that Paul the Apostle uses here, even the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in. He uses words here that he doesn't always use in many of his other descriptions and letters. Notice, first, in describing this joy giving Epaphroditus, he says he's a fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. That phrase, fellow soldier, is obviously a military phrase used by Paul because he's writing to a military town. You guys remember that? We established that in week one, that Philippi was a Roman military town. So Paul's just having a tie in there saying, hey, a fellow soldier, you guys get it because many of you come from the military. So Paul is simply using a military metaphor to say that Epaphroditus is the type of friend who got figuratively wounded in combat while serving them. He's going to go on to talk about this in a few verses here, how he got deathly sick while bringing a gift from them to Paul in Rome. So he's the kind of friend who doesn't mind taking a bullet for those that he loves. That's what Paul is saying here, that he's sacrificial in nature. He doesn't mind taking a bullet for those that he loves. Then he further describes Epaphroditus as their messenger. And what you need to know is that Paul is using that phrase literally here. He's literally saying he was a messenger from you to me and now from me to you. You see, Epaphroditus brought a gift to Paul in Rome from the church in Philippi. We assume it was a financial gift. It's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 18. And this gift acted as kind of a message from the church to Paul, a message that basically said we love you, we support you, we believe in what God is doing in and through you. And then on top of this, now don't miss this, Epaphroditus then was most likely the guy who would go on to originally carry this letter, the letter to the church in Philippi, to them from Rome where Paul is in jail. So don't miss this. He was the one who carried this letter to Philippi. That's why Paul was sending him back to hand deliver this letter. And that's also then why I think Paul calls him your messenger, the one who brought you a message originally, or brought a message to me originally from you in the form of the gift, but now is carrying a message back to you. Now here it is, the very words of God that will bring you joy and bring you life. So Epaphroditus was a joy giver, not just because he was willing to lay down his life for them, a fellow soldier, but he was a joy giver because he was a messenger that brought to them words from God that would give life to their souls. He could be trusted with special messages, gifts, and even words from God. And in doing all of this, he didn't mind risking his life for them and for God. In verse 30, it says he risked his life for them, bringing Paul their gifts in which he got deathly sick while doing, but he didn't mind doing it because he doesn't mind laying down his life for his friends. And so in putting all of these three things together, you got described here a godly man who comes alongside you, even bringing a message from God and doesn't mind laying it all down in the process. And I don't know about you, But I think a guy like this just might bring some joy into our lives, right? A friend who is willing to get close, speak truth to you, love you in the name of Jesus Christ, and then do whatever it takes to lay it all down, to see it all through. A fellow soldier, a trusted messenger, even from God, and one who will lay down his or her life for you in the process. That's bound to bring some joy. So, folks, here's why I think Paul takes 12 full verses to intricately describe Timothy and Epaphroditus. 12 verses in which he had to write it out on parchment paper that was very hard to do back then. 12 verses laboriously written with bookend discussions on joy. And that is because he knew by godly experience that these are the kind of people that if we let into our lives can bring a measure of sustaining joy. You see, folks, there are certain types of people that are joy givers in this world. And please hear, contrary to what you might think, it's not the superficial, giddy, happy people who always have a stupid smile on their face. That's not Timothy or Epaphroditus. And it's certainly not the overly positive thinkers who live in la-la land and never join the rest of us mired in reality. I don't read Timothy or Epaphroditus like that. No, Paul's simply talking about other-centered, God-focused, well-proven kind of people that are going to love you for you and yet care about you so much that they don't want to leave you there. They bring a little bit of an agenda into your world. And though that agenda is uncomfortable at times, it's an agenda of love. It's an agenda of other-centeredness. It's an agenda that focuses you on Jesus. And we like being around them. And Paul loves sending them to his churches. And so let me ask you two loaded questions as you start to think about this. Look up here on the screen. The first question is, do you have just a couple or even a few friends like this that you regularly hang out with? That's my first question to you. Do you have people like this in your life that you let in that, that would love you in this way? I know what some of you are tempted to think right now. You're thinking, well, I just don't think they're there. I mean, Jamie, did you read the text closely? Paul said he has no one else like Timothy, so they're very few and far between. And, you know, I'll grant you that. i had been in Scottsdale here a year, a full year, before I had those lunches or breakfasts with the four guys that I eventually harnessed with in my small group. A year of my antennas being up, just looking for somebody out of all the appointments and things that I have that just might take an interest in me and love me for me. And just so you guys know, it's hard to love me for me. I'm going to grant some of you that. Some of you guys, I've joked for years that that as a pastor of a large church, everybody wants to get to know me until they get to know me, and then they're like, well, that was disappointing. (laughs) And I get that because I know me, and my wife knows me, and she reminds me week in and week out how difficult I am as a personality. Ask our staff, I grant you that. I'm okay with that. That's why I'm blessed to find just four guys that want to meet with me on a week-in and week-out basis and love me for me and yet help me go where God wants me to go. But my point is simply is that if I can find them, I think all of you have a shot too. I think all of you have some people in your life that just might want to love you for you. But you see, most of us are so defensive, we don't want to let them in. I, I loved it. Years ago, I was doing marital counseling for a couple And she gave the most wonderful word picture of how her husband was treating her. He said, he does this to me all the time. He he puts his arm out and stiff-arms me and holds me at arm's length, but says, I want to get close to you. She goes, how do you get close to somebody who's stiff-arming you? And and I thought, you know, that is how so many of us function. We talk a good game. We say, I want you to get close. I want you to be close to me. But then we stiff-arm everybody around us. Anytime somebody starts to get too close, we shut down or we do something that might repel them away because we really are afraid of that kind of intimacy? Do you have just a couple? Or maybe even a few friends like this that you regularly hang out with? And then probably a more important question is the second one there, and that is, is this the kind of friend you're willing to be to those that you value the most? Folks, listen, I, I think one of the reasons that some among us don't have people like this in our lives is because either we don't reciprocate or we're never like this in the first place to the people that God has put in our lives. In other words, we're kind of like emotional black holes that always want people to pour into us, but we're never willing to really reciprocate, become other-centered, God-focused, laying our lives down for those around us so we never take the risk to pour into them. And the point is, as long as you want to live like that, as long as you never take the initiative yourself, you'll probably never have relationships like this. I can tell you right now that one of the reasons that I've turned the corner with some of our elders right now in this church, because I'm starting to develop a relationship with some of our elders that that are very much like we're describing here, is because I've taken a genuine interest in their lives, a genuine concern in their lives. I I know what their kids are doing. I know where their kids are. I know what their wives are thinking, well, in part. I, I, I know a lot about their hopes and dashed dreams. I know their stories. In fact, we spent an entire year, two years as an elder team, just telling our stories with each other so that we might foster some type of that genuine concern. But it takes other-centeredness. It takes getting out of yourself. It takes loving someone like Jesus might love them. And the reality is is that until we start to treat those around us like this, we're probably never going to have people treat us like this. Because here's the deal, folks. The answers to these two questions, I promise you, will determine the level and kind of joy that you get or even give to those around you. It's really true. I think that's the main point of the latter half of Philippians 2, that the answer to these two questions, do you let friends like this into your life, and is this the kind of friend you're willing to be to those around you, Timothy and Epaphroditus, the answer to those two questions will determine whether or not you indeed get joy and give joy in the most important relationships that you have this side of heaven. Joy comes from the most unusual and unexpected places, and one of them, again, that the church doesn't talk enough about, is how God uses the right kind of others in our lives to bring us joy. And so this week, I was just doing some internet research on the topic of joy, internet research just on what our world is saying about joy, and I shared some of that with you in my introduction. But I ran across a study that actually blew me away. Uh, Give me one click here, guys. Good, perfect. And hold there until I I ask you to move further. Um, In 1937, they started a longitudinal study, Harvard University did, called the Grant Study. A longitudinal study is simply a study that will go for a very, 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 very long time, as long as they can string it out, to try to understand certain aspects of human behavior. And in this particular study that they started in 1937, now get this, and is still going on today one of the longest longitudinal studies in the history of our modern research. They started with 268 male Harvard sophomore students who were seemingly healthy and well-adjusted, and they simply wanted to know the answer to one question, and that is that as we track their lives, what is it that will create happiness? Isn't that an amazing study? So they wanted to track all of these Harvard elite men through the rest of their lives and try to find out through all the ups and downs what would bring happiness. And so for the last 72 years, they've been studying these men, and you can do the math, over half of them, more than half, are now dead and gone because they're now about, what, 90, 95 years old, but some are still living. And they have been so exhaustive in this study that they have tracked everything from physical factors like exercise, cholesterol levels, merit, or the use of alcohol, smoking, things like that, weight. They, they tracked everything they could physically, they tracked all their marital status, how many times they've been married, what their marriages were like. They tracked their educational levels. They even tracked emotional factors with things like, you know, what seems to bring you happiness? What kind of defense mechanisms do you have? How do you seem to track, you know, significant life changes on an emotional level? They did yearly surveys, exhaustive interviews, physical measurements over and over again. And they even did autopsies on as many of the men that they could do that eventually died. Would you like to be a subject in this study? I wouldn't. But these men put themselves under this. And as you can imagine, over the period of 72 years, it's had a few different directors. The current director of this guy, is a guy, of this study, is a guy in his 70s, who for the last 42 years has been the director of the grant study. That's his only job. He's a psychiatrist by the name of George Valant. And in 2008, somebody asked Valant in, a, in an interview, what is it that you've discovered then that brings happiness? Out of all the complexities of the things that you've looked at, what is it, George, that brings happiness? Give me a click here. Here's his answer. He said the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. Isn't that interesting? A, a complex, longitudinal study from Harvard University over 72 years tracking every imaginable factor they could think of obviously not spiritual factors, because this was a secular study done by a secular sociologist or psychiatrist. But outside of that, studying everything we could from a human vantage point, and out of all the answers he could have given, he said, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. Not your job, not your health, not all the things that we tend to equate with happiness, not your money, not your retirement income, not your hobbies. The only thing they have found that really is an indicator of whether you're going to be happy or not are your relationships to other people. In fact, in a video I was watching this week on Valent, he said this, and I quote, happiness is love, full stop. Happiness is love, full stop. And I'm going to equate this next week to Jesus Christ, because I think from a Christian worldview, we realize that because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, as Paul's going to talk about in Philippians 3, that relationship has absolute capacity to give us happiness and joy through whatever life throws our way but before i do that i want you to pause this week and this is why i'm only giving you this one point this week and ask yourself on a horizontal level have you allowed this to be true for you have you allowed this to be true to have the kind of relationships in your life that will bring you true joy as god might want to infuse just a few relationships with you that will really give you joy Uh, Kirk, give me another click here. I'm going to put the other two points up on the screen there for those of you who are high control people that don't want mild anxiety for the rest of the day. You can write them down in uh, your note packet there. And we're going to discuss those more next week. But I'm not even going to mention them right now because I want us to stay on topic here. And as you're writing, I want to share one last thought that hit me. Believe it or not, on the drive here to church this morning. I'm not usually the sloppy my conclusion is usually written by about friday night at the latest saturday morning at the latest Uh, but i didn't have a way to wrap up this sermon so i woke up this morning i laid there in bed and i said god you and i both know i don't have a conclusion to my sermon what do i do and he said just chill out it'll come and so i went through my sermon this morning at, at 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 my home office and it didn't come and i and i went to starbucks and it didn't come and i was driving down shea boulevard and have you ever had a thought that you thought was from God? I do. And I had a thought, and I actually pulled over in the parking lots of Chili and wrote it down. Parking lot of Chili's, and I wrote it down. And here's a thought that hit me. And that is that you don't necessarily need the traits of Timothy and Epaphroditus to be successful. That's the pushback on today's message. If somebody wanted to push back and say, you know what, I'm really not interested in being Timothy and Epaphroditus. I can be successful without being any of those things I think they'd be right. I mean, think of all the successful people who have made a mark on this world. Many of them had none of the traits we've talked about today. Think of leading scientists who who have discovered things like MRIs and CAT scans. They were very non-relational people who who didn't have many of the traits that we have here. Henry Ford didn't have many of these traits we're talking about here today. Uh, Jack Welch didn't have many of these traits that we're talking about here today. There's lots of wildly successful people philosophers of old, inventors of old, mathematicians of old. I mean, some of the most successful people in the world do not share the traits that we're talking about here this morning. So I would argue that you don't need to be Timothy and Epaphroditus if you don't want to, to be successful. But here's a thought that did hit me. You do need these traits, however, if you want to have any personal, positive impact on those around you especially those that you love. The thought that hit me is that I can benefit from all the wonderful inventions that we have today that were made by people that were nothing like Timothy and Epaphroditus, but the ones who have affected me the most, who have personally affected me and entered into my life in a personal way, in a way that's really made a difference, none of them were like that. They were all like Timothy and Epaphroditus. other centered, genuinely concerned, and then this thought hit me. Which is Jesus more like? The Savior that you and I are trying to emulate. Was he more like the people chasing after success and doing all these things without Timothy and Epaphroditus? Or was he more like the people that Paul sent to Philippi? Who were genuinely, genuinely, genuinely concerned, other-centered, spiritually focused, willing to lay down their life for you. That's what Jesus was like. That's what he wants us to be like. And what an incredibly relevant thing for Scottsdale. Amen? I mean, you and I live in a town that is all about the success of the world. That's the town that God's put us in, and that's okay. But I don't think they need any more of that from us. I think what they need from us is a good dose of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I can't wait to hear how God uses you as you do that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word is so alive, as Hebrews 4 says, it's like a two-edged sword that divides joint and marrow, and that, Father, it's so alive that it can speak to our hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that as we've just probably scratched the surface here this morning on Paul's lengthy discussion of Timothy and Epaphroditus, that God, you might encourage us that indeed we can have the type of relationships in our lives that bring joy. It's just that we have to have certain parameters that we put around them. And so God, help us to be more discerning about who we deeply and richly let into our lives. Help us to be more insightful about the kind of friendships that we're trying to foster in our lives. And Lord, help us most importantly to dig deep in our own souls and be this way to those around us genuinely concerned, a fellow soldier Laying down our lives in a Christ-focused way. And God, as I said, I can't wait to hear stories from these dear people of what you do as you enter into our lives in this way. Lord, it was probably an exciting time when Timothy and Epaphroditus ended up in Philippi there and all that Paul said came true. Joy was given. Give us joy. Help us to be joy givers ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name and the whole church says together, amen. We're going to enter into our time of...